Sponsored by Brilliant. Go to brilliant.org slash Renee Ritchie to finish your day a little smarter every day. Welcome to my brand new channel where I talk about Apple and related technologies and culture. During the week, I do a few short analysis videos. On the weekend though, I do deeper dives like this. So yes, you do have to subscribe again if you haven't already because new channel, but it'll totally be worth it. Now, the new MacBook Air, an update to the 2018 redesign, got pretty good reviews when it came out a month ago. With the Air, each keystroke feels firm and springy. I can type quickly, aggressively, knowing the keyboard will always keep up. I'm seeing significantly better CPU performance here. The graphics are way, way better. That is a pretty competitive price point for Apple. But there were a few criticisms as well. I will say one of the silly things with this MacBook Air is the fact that we're in 2020 and it features a potato 720p webcam. Come on, Apple. Along with that, it ran much hotter and louder when doing all of these tasks. In real life running Chrome, Slack, and Zoom, I got more like five hours of battery life with the screen turned all the way up. Since then, I've had time to pound on the magic keys, compare the webcam to pretty much everything else I have, really dig into the thermals, and there's even been a macOS Catalina supplemental update. So what, if any difference, does all of that make? I'm Renee Ritchie, and this is the new MacBook Air, one month later. The original MacBook Air and the beloved 2010 redesign boasted Apple's equally beloved OG scissor switch keyboards. The 2018 redesign, though, well, that was saddled with Apple's hugely controversial butterfly keyboard. So, arguably the biggest and most important improvement to the 2020 MacBook Air is its new scissor-switch-based Magic Keyboard, the one that debuted last year on the 16-inch MacBook Pro. It promised to keep the stability of the butterfly switch keyboard, but restore some of the travel and all of the reliability of those beloved scissor switch keyboards of yore. The ones that typed out a metric gazillion coffee shop term papers and tech event live blogs alike. Does it add enough travel for the clickety clackety keyboard crowd? Does it keep enough stability for the people like me who actually preferred the feel of the butterfly? And are reliability issues really truly a thing of the past? Well, five months on the new 16-inch MacBook Pro and one month on this new MacBook Air version, and here's what I can tell you. There's definitely more travel, not enough to make the clickety-clackety crowd really happy, but a fair amount for any ultralight computer. The stability is great as well. No return to the loosey-goosey at all. Now, realistically, it's going to take a year or two of that to earn back the trust of many MacBook keyboard owners. But so far, so zero problems. There have been some complaints about how loud these new keyboards are. I'm not quite sure if that's people reacting to the actual sound level or to the precise tone of the sound. For me, it's a little loud, but not overly so. Let me know what you think, especially now that many of us are working in potentially quieter or noisier home settings rather than busy offices or coffee shops. The 2018 MacBook Air went with the more power-friendly Y-Series Ultra Mobile processors, same as the 12-inch MacBook. Well, 
processor, single. It only came with the dual-core i5. Apple didn't seem to think that that generation of i3 or i7 offered significant enough advantages to even include them, even as build-to-order options. And Y-series has just never been my favorite. I'm all for low power. I just think Apple's A-series chips, the ones they put in iPhones and iPads, run absolute rings around anything Intel is doing these days. That said, the 2020 MacBook Air includes Intel's latest Ice Lake processors. These are 10th generation built on Intel's new Sunny Cove architecture and their new 10 nanometer process, finally. And Apple is now offering options for i3, i5, and i7. What's more, the i5 and i7 are now quad-core. Some have been critical of this, calling the i3 anemic and saying it's an underpowered, cost-cutting option only there to hit that magic $999 price point. And at the opposite end, that the i7 is just too hot for the current MacBook Air design and is being offered merely as a way to upsell people on performance they can't really make complete use of. Others have recommended the i3 for having better sustained performance and ramping up the fans less during normal usage and the i7 for people who appreciate extra snappiness and whose workloads really benefit from short bursts of maximum effort. And unfortunately, modern Intel Silicon, including things like thermals and turbo boosts, just aren't well understood, including by people who press buttons on synthetic benchmarks and then put fire emojis in all their titles. So I got Dr. Ian Cutras from Anantech on the line to help explain it all. The issue here is how turbo is applied, right? Um... Most chips just normally idle at 1.4, 1.5 gigahertz. Everybody's used to that. And the idea is that they turbo up when you request performance. And there are two features to that turbo, how much you turbo up to and the time it takes to get to that turbo. So the idea is that if you open your browser, if you open Edge or Safari, um, the minute you double click, you instantly go into a high power mode. All the I.O. is loaded in. Uh, CPU processes it, and you get an instantaneous experience. That's the user experience focus point of turbo. The issue with these turbo modes is that obviously when you drive up the frequency, uh, you're driving up the power because power is related to the voltage and the frequency, and it's a nonlinear relationship. So when you start to do, say, some video encoding, it will go, oh, we need to be super responsive and go straight to the max turbo. And then it will sit there for a couple of seconds then go, oh, hang on, we're drawing way too much power. We have to throttle back to a frequency which balances the power requirements of the workload, the power requirements of the system, but also the thermal limits of the system, especially in a mobile device. And that's, that's typically where that sort of balance lies. For this explanation, you have to kind of differentiate between what is the CPU going to a lower frequency due to these tur turbo limitations versus thermal throttling. Thermal throttling is a very specific scenario whereby the device gets way too hot and the chip will declock to below the Intel base frequency. So if your base frequency is, say, 1.8 gigahertz, it will literally go beyond that to 1 gigahertz and it will drop the voltage way down because its goal is to bring the thermals within the right window. So if you're doing that video encoding workload, you're going for more than 15 seconds. And beyond that sort of 15 seconds limit, that's where you get into this sustained performance limitation. And Apple, I think, philosophically likes running a TDP Max. It just seems like that's what they designed for. But it's, it's like I said, when you instantly load up an application, when you need that instant user performance, you know, every device will hit their, their um, turbo max power, their PL2. So for a 15-watt chip, that may be 25 watts. And it will sustain it you know, very briefly. Um, and uh, the chip is fine to do that. But the minute you do anything more serious, it, you know, it will slowly step down the frequency until it hits that 
sustained 15 watts or what, whatever Apple's doing. Because Apple always gets these special, you know, better performance bin chips, don't they? I think that's what they pay extra for. Uh, yeah, and earlier. Uh, so is there anybody that you would recommend an i7 for in a MacBook Air style chassis? It's one of those things where if you can amortize the cost and get the better performance out of it, then it definitely does make sense. Um, I mean, a lot of people who are who might see the performance difference between the i5 and the i7 might not necessarily be doing these you know, sustained workloads. They might be doing something in the middle between you know, instantaneous and sustained. I mean, me, me personally, I typically, I, I like um, ultra-portable devices that are high performance, thin, light, as many cores, all the frequency, but no discrete graphics because I don't want that lugging around with extra power, right? <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. I really appreciate it. No worries. And one month later, I still think the i5 version really is the best of the new MacBook Airs for everybody. If your workload is exceptionally light, you can absolutely get away with the i3. And if you think you can eke out a few seconds of better performance, then maybe you do want to go for the i7. But again, in general, the i5 for me is the absolute sweet spot. I think part of the problem is some people really just really want the MacBook Air to be a MacBook Pro for half the weight and half the price. But if you have anything approaching real pro-level workflows, if you want to run a ton of Final Cut or Logic, you know, pro, or virtual machines, or more demanding games, you can do it on the air, but your time to output and your stress level will be ever so much higher than if you just did yourself a favor and got the current pro or waited for the next one, if you can afford it, of course. In my original review, I color graded and edited 4K Canon RAW Lite in Final Cut Pro 10 on the i5 2020 MacBook Air and exported it to ProRes 422. And it totally worked. It just took five times longer than the i9 16-inch MacBook Pro to do it. But I didn't do it in any way to show a normal workflow. I did it as a way to test maximum load, same way I use Pokemon Go events to do that for iPhones. But just because you can doesn't mean you should, especially not if it's an everyday workload for you. I mean, I know every tech nerd wants every shiny new product to be for us. I know I do. But the Air really is meant to be the MacBook for everyone else, for the vast majority of people whose workloads and priorities are decidedly not pro. And for those workloads, this silicon, from CPU snappiness to core count, graphical execution units to the accelerators on Apple's own custom T2 chips, this really is the best silicon ever inside a MacBook Air. And while Apple can and absolutely should continue to tweak the thermals to get as much performance as possible from the Intel inside, given the kind of ultralight Macs Apple really wants to make, I don't think we'll see real significant improvements until that Intel is no longer inside. For battery life, I've been consistently getting about eight hours a day of reading and writing, watching YouTube and Nebula at an average of 75% brightness. That's without video editing, which can have it, and using Safari and not Chrome, but I do run Electron apps like Slack, which are every bit as power inefficient. Apple rates the dual-core i3 at 11 hours for that kind of workload, so 8 hours for the quad-core i5 is by no means a deal-breaker, but it'd be great if every Air could hit iPad-class battery life. Again, even if it takes Apple chips to do it. The MacBook Air has just never had a terrific camera. No MacBook has, not really. Even when the lids were still thick enough to house a glowing Apple logo, the cameras inside were middling at best. And now those lids are thinner than the thinnest iOS device. A decade ago, almost all laptop cameras were bad, so it wasn't really something that stood out. Even now, today, so many laptops have such bad cameras, it still wouldn't really stand out. Except for two things. First, 
how much Apple has absolutely improved MacBook speaker and microphone quality, which used to be almost as universally bad across the industry. And second, how much Apple has improved front-facing cameras on the iPhone and even iPad. Joanna Stern already did a terrific video comparing the new MacBook Air camera to several other laptop cameras and the iPhone 11 in good light, backlight, and low light. So here, I wanna do a different comparison that combines microphones and speakers with the camera because Apple's big pitch with recent audio upgrades is that if you don't have access to your fancier higher-end kit in a pinch, you can still get by with a built-in. And I would just all caps love it if Apple could have our backs in the exact same way with video. This is the 2020 MacBook Air microphone and camera. This is the camera and microphone on the 2016 12-inch MacBook. This is the microphone and camera on the 2017 15-inch MacBook Pro. This is the 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro camera and microphone. This is a 2017 iMac Pro camera and microphone. This is a Logitech 920 1080p camera and microphone. This is a Logitech 4K Brio camera and microphone. This is a 2020 MacBook Air microphone and camera. This is a 2019 10.2-inch iPad front-facing camera and microphone. This is the 2020 12.9-inch iPad Pro front-facing camera and microphone. This is the 2019 iPhone 11 front-facing camera and microphone. This is the 2020 MacBook Air microphone and camera. Originally, I think the expectation was that if you had to travel, you might need the better audio and, I'd argue, the better video as well. Now, many of us are stuck at home on video conference calls all day for work and for extended family and friends. And the audio and video on our computers have become our windows to the world and our primary means of maintaining even a semblance of human connection. On the iPhone, Apple's cameras are among the best in the industry. Given the lack of Zendex, I don't know if it would take another wedge, a periscope design. Hell, I know I'm in the minority, but I'd even take a camera bump at this point. I'd just love to see the same best-in-class cameras come to the Mac. I said in my original review that the 2020 MacBook Air fixed the three biggest issues with the 2018 MacBook Air, bringing it back in line with that beloved 2010 MacBook Air, the keyboard, the performance, and the price. Yes, it's not intended for pro workloads. The sRGB display isn't as bright or colorful as pretty much every other Apple display on the market. It still hasn't shrunk the bezels or added face ID, and the camera just isn't good. But from the faster memory to beefier base storage, the better processors and graphics to the new Magic Keyboard, to once again hitting that Magic $999 US price tag, $899 with the education discount. One month later, I'm gonna say again what I said before. The Air is fully, finally back as the best everyday Mac. And it's light but sturdy, thin but wedge-shaped design with the convenience of Touch ID and the productivity and creativity made possible by all the free built-in apps and the best-in-class App Store apps are just as true today, moving from desk to sofa to bed to balcony as they ever were moving from work to home to plane to coffee shop. And I know that because I did the math, thanks to Brilliant's complete math course library. I mean, what better way to improve your knowledge and potential while stuck at home? You can learn or brush up on mathematical fundamentals, probability fundamentals, algebra, calculus, trigonometry, differential equations, and geometry fundamentals. See, Brilliant's brilliance is in taking complex concepts and breaking them up into bite-sized, understandable chunks. You start by having fun with their interactive puzzles, but over time, what you can accomplish is just amazing. Especially right now, we could all use just a little bit of amazing.
To learn more, literally learn so much more, go to brilliant.org slash Renee Ritchie and sign up for free. Be one of the first 200 people, and you can also level up with 20% off the annual premium subscription. Thanks, Brilliant, and thanks to all of you for your support. Should you look at an iPad or an iPad Pro instead of a MacBook Air? It's a totally fair question, especially as iPad processors eclipse Intel, and prices with accessories like the upcoming Magic Keyboard are starting to do the same. For me, the bottom line is this. If you need Mac apps, you need a Mac. If you prefer a traditional computing experience from the clamshell to the terminal, you need a Mac. If you want the touchscreen tablet option and you're fine with or even prefer iOS apps, then by all means, check out the iPad instead. And if you're still undecided, I'll have my one month later deep dive review on the latest iPad Pro next week as well. In the meantime, hit like if you do, subscribe if you haven't already, ring that bell if you want YouTube to actually tell you when new episodes go live, and then hit up the comments and let me know. What's your take on the 2020 MacBook Air one month later? And what questions do you still want answered? Thanks for watching. See you next video.